Um, so thank you so much for uh, inviting me to speak here today. Uh, I am indeed a researcher at the Neuroscience Ethics and Society team at the Department of Psychiatry here in Oxford. Um, and this is uh, what I'm presenting today. It's a little bit of work that I've been doing together with Ilana Singh, uh, who's a professor also at the Neurosec uh, here in Oxford. And I'm going to talk about what I call towards a plasticity of the mind, which discusses um, newish ethical conundrums in dementia care treatment and research. I say newish because these ethical conundrums at their base have been around for quite some time. If we look at uh, the ethics of aging and dementia in general, already Pythagoras in the seventh century before Christ had a um, well piece of literature where he wrote about the point in life where mortal existence closes after a great length of time to which very fortunately few of the human species ever arrive. Uh, and we arrive at the imbecility of the first epoch of the infancy. Similarly, Cicero in the second century before Christ was talking about that we ought to fight against it as we would uh, fight any disease. Much greater care is due to the mind and soul for they too, like lamps, grow dim with time unless we keep them supplied with oil. So if we're talking about dementia these days, uh, the NIH definition of dementia is the loss of cognitive functioning, thinking, remembering, and reasoning, and behavioral abilities such as the, to such an extent that it interferes with a person's daily life and activities. And this uh, includes a number of functions, of course, that impair our ability to keep on going with our lives as usual. And uh, it greatly affects our personality as well in the end. Now, dementia, just some quick number, numbers. It's very prevalent in the world. We're talking about, uh, about 850,000 people uh, to a million in the UK currently live with dementia and approximately 50 million people worldwide. And per year, about 10 more million uh, will get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia or Lewy bodies and so forth. And I say here, the main causes of dementia are these uh, diagnoses because typically you have a main uh, triggering factor that causes dementia. And then in the end, you will have a uh, sort of a multi-morbidity case where you will see symptoms from various conditions intertwined. Uh, further, we can divide dementia into three stages. Uh, we have early stages, which is rarely discovered actually, um, where we're talking about symptoms of forgetfulness and losing track of time and so forth, which can be difficult to detect and separate from, as we would say, normal aging. And we have middle stage where things get a little bit more severe and we start uh, becoming worried. And that's usually when we detect these cases of dementia uh, for various reasons. And finally, late stage dementia, which is maybe the, the stage of dementia, which we mostly think about when we hear the word dementia, when people have difficulties recognizing relatives and friends and uh, have uh, an increasing need for assisted self-care and so forth. And here we also see uh, serious implications for personality alterations and so forth. Now, again, um, I will be talking about new-ish ethical conundrums in dementia care uh, treatment and research. And I will be mainly talking about three things. Um, 
In the first part, I will be talking about relational identity adoption, um, paradoxical lucidity and transformative experiences, which are all phenomena emerging from dementia, dementia care. In the second part of this presentation, I will talk a little bit about what the implications might be for philosophical and ethical frameworks around dementia and uh, for our, the practical concerns we have in care, looking at these uh, previous three cases or phenomena. And then finally, I will make an argument or a case for what I call the plasticity of the mind, that is an understanding of the mind as having plasticity. Uh, starting then with part one, uh, phenomena emerging from dementia and dementia care, I would like to start talking about the role of caregivers. Um, I've coined the term relational identity adoption. There might be a more correct term to apply to this phenomena. And uh, please let me know in the Q&A if you think so. But in essence, it refers to the partial or complete re relocation of habits, intentions, and values, and primarily in the, in the direction of from cared for persons, that is persons with dementia, towards caregivers in dementia care. Um, if we're looking at these three stages, it's easy to think again about dementia as this late stage uh, condition. However, throughout this time, from early to middle to late stage, usually you will have a caregiver or several caregivers that are walking alongside you along the way. Jason Karlowicz recently uh, said in an interview that we have uh, failed to fully recognize our need for long-term care services and support, and that Alzheimer's, in this case, isn't just a cognitive problem. It's a disability that requires someone else to step in. The caregiver is the accommodation. And then again, it's not until later in the disease that we're thinking about these things that normally we, we associate with dementia care. But for the first two thirds, that is in early and mid-stage uh, dementia, um, it's about planning a day and staying social and engaged, paying bills, managing finances and so forth. And during this time, uh, caregivers have increasingly been reporting um, that they start sort of taking on these habits and these actions as their own, but for the cared for person. So we're talking everything from what to cook and what to wear a certain day or which TV program to watch, all the way to deciding who to vote for and making medical decisions. And what's fascinating about this, um, this phenomenon is that caregivers performing these cognitive and emotive and physical tasks are doing it as if they were doing them for themselves, while simultaneously recognizing their own preferences and values as distinct from that of the cared for person. So they're doing it as if they're doing it for themselves by, while still being aware that it's not their own um, sort of value system that lies behind it or their own intentions. And, uh, and desires. So that's the first uh, phenomenon that I think uh, raises some issues for how we typically perceive dementia and, and uh, decision-making. The second one is that of paradoxical lucidity. And paradoxical lucidity, uh, the term can be again contested, but mainly it has to do with an episode of unexpected and spontaneous meaningful and relevant communication or connectedness in a patient who is assumed to have been 
permanent, uh, to have permanently lost the capacity for coherent verbal or behavioral interaction due to uh, dementia or related pro processes. So here we are looking at the later stages of uh, dementia. And I suppose that the term paradoxical is referring to this unexpectedness in that it shouldn't be possible. Um, we have some examples. So uh, here's uh, um, a person, a, a mother that had dementia and didn't really know uh, anyone after a while, as happens in dementia, you forget about people and relationships. But the last 24 hours of her life, um, she recognized and, and uh, talked to loved ones and referred to them specifically and said, I love you. Um, and in another case, um, a nurse said, uh, you get times where people suddenly seem to perk up just before they die. They seem to get better. They become coherent. And then they just seem to go. In The Guardian the other day, this was this Tuesday, there was an article published also with a case that I just ha had to include because it was so explicit about it, um, where the author writes that the next morning she visited Ward, uh, so sort of, um, sorry, uh, the next morning when she visited, Ward recognized his daughter instantly. And for the next two days they spoke. It was as if his mind had been unplugged for so many years, she remembers. And then all of a sudden it got plugged back in again. Then he lost consciousness. Two days later, he died. So it's about this all of a sudden lucidness or ab ability to have a coherent conversation and an interaction with the world, which in many cases, they haven't had for months or years. So usually this occurs shortly before death. Um, that hence, this kind of phenomenon has sometimes been called terminal lucidity. And as I understand it, the paradoxical lucidity more has to do with the uh, sort of loss of capacities that we typically um, encounter in dementia and, and related conditions. While terminal lucidity more refers to being close to dying for whatever reason and, and be not being able to um, uh, having conversations and so forth for various reasons. So in some studies we're looking at small sample sizes, of course, but in a, a study using 49 cases, 43% uh, of these episodes of paradoxical acidity occurred within the last day of life and 41% within two to seven days before death. So it is relatively close to, to death for these people. If we're looking at the length of these episodes, another study looking at 38 cases, we could see that most of it, these episodes last from 30 uh, minutes to a couple of hours. And um, looking at how dementia and neurodegenerative diseases specifically, such as Alzheimer's, it's unlikely that spontaneous neuronal regeneration is behind this, right? It's not that suddenly the brain grows back and uh, we gain these abilities and, and then we die. There seemed to be something else behind it. So what do patients do in this phase? Again, they recognize and inquire about loved ones. They partake in coherent conversations, uh, referring to different times in their lives. And, uh, as we could see from that Guardian quote, they appear as themselves all of a sudden, even if they haven't done so in a very long time. And it was one case uh, which I read where someone recited poetry from memory all of a sudden, a beautiful poem that they had loved, had loved earlier in their life. 
And uh, as I mentioned earlier, these kind of phenomena uh, phenomena has, has been observed in other conditions, such as strokes and uh, tumors and coma, but uh, it really challenges, I think, our views on dementia and neurodegenerative disease in that it's, we have been viewing it as this constant decline on these functions and uh, not a sudden uh, revoking of, of, of those very functions. The third case or the third set of phenomena uh, I want to look at is uh, the sort of the frameworks that have started being, being built around transformative experiences. Transformative experiences in the literature refers to experiences which are epistemically and personally transformative in some substantial way. So epistemically transformative in this sense means providing forms or degrees of knowledge and understanding that were previously unavailable and more importantly, previous in, previously inaccessible insofar that they depend on having that very specific experience. So it's impossible to know uh, what it's like to have an experience before you've had it. And also that these personal, um, the, these experiences are personally transformative and that they fundamentally change one's values, preferences, desires, and uh, in some substantive way, who we are. And recently, um, this has gained a lot of traction, this idea of experiences being transformative in some fundamental sense. Um, L.A. Paul published a book appropriately named Transformative Experiences, which really kicked off this debate and mainly saw it as a problem for decision theory. So you cannot know what it's like to have a certain kind of experience until you've had it. Um, so you cannot de determine the value of any outcome that involves what it is like for you to have had that experience. And if you cannot determine the subjective values of the relevant outcomes, you cannot compare the values and therefore cannot rationally choose if you would be better off uh, given those values. More recently, this has been uh, sort of revamped where it was previously mainly a problem for decision theory as may, uh, mentioned where we're looking at can you rationally decide to become a parent or gain a sensory ability through for example implants or the example that Paul uses is can you rationally choose to become a vampire given that it would be a very different way of existing. Uh, we're moving into now uh, different domains and indeed dementia has been mentioned as a possible transformative experience and that it's impossible for us to know what it is like to be in that state, in a demented state until you are in that state. So it's impossible to know what values and preferences you would have in that state until you are in that state. And therefore uh, the implications of this is like, what, what value or what weight should we give to advanced directives and other tools and procedures in preparing for dementia that is, if I get dementia, I want this to happen and that to happen. How can we rationally make those decisions if we have no idea what it is like to be in that position? So looking a little bit deeper than at the implications of these phenomena for philosophical and ethical frameworks, but also for care and practice, uh, we can start looking at personal identity. That is, what does it mean to be a person, the same person over time, if we look at dementia cases? Uh, relational identity adoption, I think, is uh, perhaps the most obvious one where it's a bit odd. Uh, we're thinking who, who is who a little bit. Um, we can support people's 
uh, cared for people's ideas and and uh, sort of help them fulfill their their preferences and so forth but to what extent is is that identity then or those actions those of the person in paradoxical lucidity we have uh, the problem of someone seemingly disappearing and then coming back again later on before they die and transformative experiences, perhaps less so a problem for personal identity than the previous two ones, but still it's a question of, is that me later in the demented state? And can I make those kind of decisions early on for what should happen to me later? So if we look a little bit more specifically, a common view of what it means to be a person over time uh, is that in dementia, we gradually fade away or wither away. We will have hear people say things like my mother or father or spouse is gone uh, long before death, as we saw in some of the quotes from earlier, that is, this person hadn't been herself for several years and just uh, wasn't contactable, didn't recognize anyone in any meaningful way and couldn't express who they truly were. But it seems then that uh, the way some people take on sort of the habits um, of these uh, people that need to be cared for, <clears throat> sorry, um, can call that into question. And more importantly, in <clears throat> paradoxical lucidity, is the question if they're really gone. If we look at philosophical theory about personal identity over time, one prominent account is the psychological continuum theory, that is, that personal identity or, or what matters in persistence, depending on how you look at it, over time depends upon the psychological connectedness of a person. Uh, in the case of relational identity adoption, we can ask who and what can constitute such a connection over time. That is, is it enough that someone is carrying those personal traits or those connections, or does do those uh, connected uh, connections need to be carried out by the person themselves? Um, and then the question is, how do we explain breaks in connectedness? Do we, if there is no psychological connectivity and then all of a sudden on your deathbed, you wake up in that sense. And there seems to be a correlation between who you used to be and who you are now, but in between there's this black space. How do we explain that if we think that um, what matters in personal identity is psychological continuum of this kind? It's also a problem for um, a theory that has gained a lot of traction over the last decades, which is narrative identity theory. That is, persistence is essentially constituted by the ability to say, tell a coherent story about one's own life with a beginning, middle, and an end. And the question is here then, does it have to be self-told or is it enough that someone else can be telling the story or fill in the gaps of your story? Um, Second, we can look at coherence without completion, as it were, in, um, in a sense that it, there is this gap in between them in paradoxical lucidity. That is what happens with that story in the middle. Um, or for that matter, that it is uh, part of your life, maybe, that is very coherent. So some people that um, sort of have these paradoxical lucidity episodes will remember very specifically and act within a specific coherent space of their life that is not necessarily the present time, but sometime in the past. But that whole section is still coherent and they interact in that 
universe, as it were, uh, very coherently. And when it comes to uh, transformative experiences, the question is, when do we tell a true story in that sense, a coherent story about yourself, if your writings are the final chapters with your advanced directives or what it might be, when you are deemed to be competent or fully competent, or do we tell the story later on uh, when we are in a state which we could previously not access or imagine what it would be like? Is that where we're telling the true story of our lives? Moving on into the question of autonomy, um, it is difficult to imagine how we would, should, would or should understand autonomy distribution in these cases. More specifically, I mean, if we look at frameworks such as uh, the famous book uh, up on children's uh, account in biomedical ethics, which is widely referred to and used, um, an action is autonomous if it is intentional, taken with an understanding of that action, and is not controlled by an external or restrictive internal conditions. But the question is then who has the intention and who interprets them in, in the case of relational identity adoption. And in some cases, it seems also that sort of co-intentionality and co-understanding, that is that someone is assisting people with dementia in understanding issues or carrying out intentions. Um, those kind of actions are that those kind of supportive actions are required for um, not having um, your external conditions or your internal conditions and in that you have dementia restricting your wishes. And the question again, uh, looking at transformative experiences, when do we have the right sort of understanding? Is it when we don't uh, ha have not yet suffered the loss of capacities typically associated with dementia before we get it? Or do we need that transformative experience um, of dementia to fully understand uh, the situation and the choices we would like to make. Additionally, if we look at uh, other more perhaps comprehensive uh, frameworks for autonomy, uh, Joel Feinberg defined capacity autonomy, that is the fundamental capacity of rational choice as excluding infants and insane persons and severely retarded the senile and the comatose and including virtually everyone else. A genuinely incompetent being below the threshold is incapable of making even foolish, unwise, reckless or perverse choices. And if we look at these relational identity adoption cases, the question is, can someone else than ourselves bring us above the threshold in that sense that someone else takes on these tasks or uh, helps us with the cognitive work um, to bring us over the threshold and make decisions? And are we ever truly below the threshold in dementia? Um, here, Feinberg seems to believe that is the case. Uh, looking at paradoxical lucidity, that is the question. That is, are we fundamentally incapable of making such decisions or being competent? Or is dementia sort of a blanket that lies on top through which we cannot sort of pop up and, and uh, realize our autonomy and, and our competence? And uh, so the question is then, are we truly below the capacity threshold in this sense, or is it more what he later called um, condition autonomy, that is, we are temporarily 
uh, restricted from exercising our autonomy. Um, looking at other values, I mean, stress and depression is already very common in not only the patients uh, with dementia, but also in family caregivers and healthcare professionals working or, and or living with persons with dementia. And this uncertainty and unclarity about what is going on in case, so paradoxical acidity, for example, um, sort of, um, if, we, if you add the, the ineptness of, of frameworks uh, that, that we have just looked at is likely to contribute to poor mental health and reduced well-being in those populations. While if we had good frameworks and good theories to explain what is going on, perhaps we could remedy that somewhat. Um, if we're looking at practical care implications relating to that, one question is, of course, uh, who should do what and for whom? Um, if we accept somehow that other people can support autonomy and maybe even support our identity, it's the question always who is making this choice? Um, is it the person with dementia making a choice with the help of a caregiver or is it the caregiver making a choice based on what they think that the person with dementia is trying to say or would like in this situation? Um, again, the question about sort of competence comes up when we're talking about paradoxical lucidity and that does lucidity imply competence. Um, I haven't yet come across any studies that sort of investigate to what degree we would call these people autonomous or com medically competent in that sense that they could potentially make decisions for themselves, but it seems at least not um, impossible that that is the case in some cases. In other cases, maybe less so, but in some of these cases, it seems that they are aware enough of the situation. They're referring to their own condition as being in dementia and dying in a way that we could possibly imagine that they, they could be competent and in other cases, less so. So it's difficult to uh, sort of make the, the distinction there. Uh, and again, looking at the advanced directives, it's um, difficult to, to see how we would best respect autonomy. Is it best um, retained through these documents that are advanced directives, or do we better trust caregivers where, where that is possible at all, where there are caregivers that have been living with people for a long time? Or do we dismiss the documents completely in the light of dementia being transformative? That is like, you shouldn't have, you shouldn't put much weight to these documents because when you wrote them, you didn't have sufficient information about what it's like to be in a demented state. So that being said, then moving on to part three, uh, which is more what I hope to be the constructive part of this presentation. Um, as I see it, the, the problem is that common contemporary theories of what dementia entails in terms of autonomy, identity, and other related constituents of personhood are too rigid to explain and or allow widely reported phenomena in dementia and dementia care. And with allow here, I mean in a theoretical sense and not in a um, legal sense or, or permittance in that sense. So what I'm leaning towards is that a, perhaps a solution would be to allow for these constitutive parts of the self, such as elements of your personal principles, desires, values, and preferences to be relocated 
and still considered as that of the person, as long as those elements are in principle accessible to that person in some intimate and substantial way. And in this way, move towards an understanding of the mind, which entails its plasticity. Um, it sounds a bit far out there, perhaps. So I thought it could help to um, relate this to, to a number of frameworks and, and ideas that are already out there that we have observed and that we are accepting to a, a higher or lesser degree. Uh, obviously, the, the idea of the, plas uh, the plasticity of the mind comes from plasticity in neuroscience, that is the anatomic and functional changes that the central nervous system is based on. Uh, so the activation of parallel pathways to maintain function within a damaged area, activation of silent pathways, or the formation of new connections in the brain. Um, and we are already using these, un this understanding of plasticity to, to inform our building of brain-computer in interfaces and deep brain stimulation to sort of um, help the brain repair itself. Uh, that is increasing plasticity through engineering in some sense. Um, the second um, concept that is more of a framework of understanding autonomy and care is that of relational autonomy. This comes from the care ethics literature originally where we're seeing relationships as essential for autonomy, support and retention. That is, no one can be truly autonomous if there's not others there to respect or sort of support that autonomy. Um, Saskia Nagel wrote in 2015, framing autonomy as embracing subject intersubjectivity, the values of mutual respect and of responsible care for the vulnerable, as well as allowing autonomy support can circumvent an essentially individualistic view of autonomy with its strong commitment to safeguard individuals' autonomy. So it's not a completely alien idea to uh, sort of not only see autonomy as relational, but perhaps other constituents of personhood as well, such as identity. Thirdly, we can look at extended mind theory, which is mainly a philosophy of mind uh, sort of item. Uh, but basically the hypothesis is that cognition can extend beyond the brain and into the world in general. Uh, more than being a supporting tool of the mind, things like a notebook actively co-constitutes co that mind. And uh, most famously, David Chalmers is the proponent of this uh, theory. And uh, he argues that the notes of a book, for example, are no less part of your mind than your neurons that would otherwise hold the information that is in the notebook, uh, as long as they contain sort of the same information and work functionally the same way. So in, in uh, these days, I suppose uh, the notebook could just as well be a smartphone or laptop or other tools that sort of assist us in cognitive task processing. Um, if we imagine that an intersubjectivist account of extended mind theory, we would be able to allow mind, mind extensions like the notebook, but not only into items, but between persons, if indeed, neurons and cognitive items, as I call them here, that is notebooks or smartphones, are equally part of my mind, as long as they fulfill the same function, then why shouldn't the neurons of another person's mind also qualify for this status? As long as the phenomenal consciousness is left out of the equation, because we imagine at least that that is something very uh, subjective that cannot directly be shared with others, 
and uh, and as long as uh, cognition or access consciousness is what matters i don't see any great barrier to take this step so the plastic mind um as i envision it is and pardon this difficult philosophical phrasing uh, an intersubjectivist and relational extended mind account of personal persistence in dementia. So this would allow that in progressive dementia, um, as neural networks and neurons become damaged or disrupted or destroyed, the mind may increasingly relocate substantial elements of its constitution into other vessels. If they are neurons, tools, or persons, uh, doesn't really matter, but they should be somehow performing uh, corresponding functions uh, in some causal way. I imagine I put this within parentheses because I'm not entirely sure if uh, causally is the most important connection between them. But it seems as if there seems to be a there needs to be a relationship between why, uh, for example, someone is uh, voting a certain way and or. Uh, performing a certain task that is because it is the intention that I would have had otherwise or that I have but cannot um, um, sort of uh, act upon. So it needs to be, uh, I, my intentions or my desires need to be the reason for this happening, this function taking place. Um, and this way of looking at the mind in dementia specifically uh, could make paradoxical lucidity less of a problem in terms of understanding the apparent sudden retention of personhood, at least from a philosophical perspective, because it's not that it disappeared and got chopped off and then reappeared, but it just has been um, sort of working its way around the fact that it could no longer re uh, remain in the brain or being expressed by that brain at that very moment. Secondly, it could inform the debate on transformative experiences and help us make sense of how the mind may change into something beyond what is considered sort of an event horizon in progressive dementia. That is, that we don't know what it's like um, to uh, have dementia before we have it. And that this happens in a nonlinear manner, which I think is something that uh, is often underemphasized when we talk about dementia, is the fact that it's not a straight slope down but it it's uh, goes up and down when it comes to cognitive functions and emotion emotions and personality coherence and i think the paradoxical acidity is also just an extreme case of this um, sort of influx and outflux of coherence thirdly it could help us explain what is going on in relational identity adoption in terms of caregivers partially taking on the autonomy and identity of persons living with dementia. So there are still some remaining issues. I think there are, I mean, more than the ones I'm listing here, uh, but some of them that I've considered myself are unclarities about, it, it doesn't help us make decision, decisions about who should make decisions. I mean, just because we imagine that, um, people can, in principle, um, express the autonomy of a person with dementia. It doesn't mean that every choice they make uh, will be that an extension of that person's will. And how do we determine when they should be able to make those choices or those calls? There's a philosophical problem about who makes decisions. <clears throat> that is, even if we allow that people can share 
intentions or someone can take on the intentions of someone else or desires or preferences of someone else in order to sort of uh, retain their identity. It's not clear exactly when I make a choice or I make a decision um, for, even if I consider it to be uh, sort of in line with what a person with dementia that I'm caring for would, would have made, it's not clear who makes the decision. Is it, is it mainly then an extension of that person with dementia or is it me making that decision for them? Uh, or can we both, do we both force, form sort of a new mind entity that is uh, a co-op in that sense? Uh, again, it's not, even if it helps, I think informing the debate on the, uh, advanced directives, I don't think it solves the debate. Uh, it's not clear exactly how we should understand advanced directives in the light of this. Um, maybe they should still, uh, they could serve a purpose as uh, advisory documents at most or something like that. But looking at transformative experiences, uh, it's not clear that uh, plasticity of mind sort of makes the final call if advanced directives are, should just be abolished or if we should still keep them. I think it's somewhere in between there. Um, it all, it's also unclear to me, uh, and I want to stress that, that it's not clear uh, what impact it has on uh, our view on other, that is, non-dementia conditions. Uh, if the mind is indeed plastic in this sense, why should it only be plastic in dementia? Uh, I have focused on the dementia cases because that is the problem sort of that I'm addressing, um, but uh, it's not entirely clear to me that uh, that means that that's how we should understand the mind in general, um, or that it's the best way to understand the human mind in general as plastic. And that is something that I'm happy to discuss in, in the Q&A afterwards. Uh, and finally, and that's something that all philosophers, I suppose, and, and many researchers struggle uh, with this, is uh, asking ourselves honestly if, if an idea of the mind is, as plastic would be conveyable and believable to caregivers, healthcare professionals, and patients. That is, is this a good, uh, is there any easy way to communicate this to people that uh, how they should understand dementia is, is uh, through this? That is, you will not just decline straight down, but actually you could share your, your uh, identity and your autonomy with other people in this way and, and therefore persist over time. Um, so some concluding remarks then, um, again, I, I think these are old issues or uh, even if in new shapes, that's why I call them newish ethical conundrums. Um, but what's clear to me when we're looking at these recent research leaps, uh, it's an urgent need of assessment. Um, it has serious effects on how we conceive of identity and autonomy and other values in dementia. And we need to understand these phenomena and in order to evaluate and act upon them. Uh, finally, again, my account here that I've been drawing up uh, will not solve any of these issues, but hopefully uh, it can contribute to us moving in the right direction. <laughs>